Shayom and Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 6, Tyranny Over Nature. Humans have a sense of entitlement and ownership over planet Earth that is really quite remarkable. The land of Israel-centered monotheistic religions buttress this tendency. The book of Genesis tells us, God said, Let us make a human in our image, by our likeness, to hold sway over the fish of the sea, and the fowl of the heavens, and the cattle and the wild beasts, and all the crawling things upon the earth. And God created the human in his image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and fill the earth, and conquer it. The word translated here by Robert Alter as hold sway is radu. That actually is quite stronger than the verb that Alter used. It can be translated as rodan or tyrant. If so, according to the Bible, humans are tyrants of the earth, at least according to this theological perspective on it. Still, this seems more of a human ambition than a reality. Even today, with all of our technological advancements, we cannot completely master nature. Still, there are disasters coming on to us that we can't stop. But we certainly have tried. This episode will examine the most critical step in our quest to master nature, the development of agriculture. In this episode, we're going to look at a period called the Epipaleolithic. That comes between the uh, Stone Age and the Neolithic era, which is the fully agricultural era. So what we're looking at is a period of transition. And that's important because we used to consider the transition to agriculture a sort of rapid technological advance occurring at a specific time and place about 10,000 years ago. We often tried to pinpoint a date and place where the first farmers showed up. Some thought it was in Mesopotamia, Others thought it was in the Nile. Uh, Recent research has shown that it's actually in the land of Israel, and we'll talk about that. But we also understand that that's not really how things panned out. There wasn't an innovative moment of breakthrough into um, agriculture. So here we're going to look at that transition between hunter-gathering and farming. Now, the star of the early Neolithic period, of the early agriculture, is the Natufian culture. They're the first genuinely agricultural society, and they have seeped into the social consciousness more than any other people of the period. Through their agrarian prowess and the large amount of remains they've left behind, they got star billing, or whatever the Neolithic equivalent of star billing would be. But this overstresses the importance of that one group. Through their relative fame, there have been some references to the Natufians in popular media. For example, some modern Palestinians have claimed to have a Natufian ancestry. But putting that aside, historical changes are a process. The Natufians did not come out of the blue. And today we're going to look at sort of how we got there, how we got to the first truly agricultural society in the land of Israel. So instead of looking at a a rapid transition to agriculture, 
Today we look at the Epipaleolithic and the cultures that lived in the Epipaleolithic as beginning an adaptation to changes in the environment that would ultimately lead to a revolution. At this point you might be wondering why I'm calling a process that's so gradual a revolution. Well that's because agriculture and the onset of agriculture are one of the most far-reaching events in human history. It saw humans begin to create societies and lifestyles that were completely different from what were, and some would say still are, what they're evolutionarily suited to. You see, adopting agriculture involved domesticating certain plants and animals. That allowed humans to produce the vast majority of their caloric intake through a sedentary lifestyle. By 9000 BCE, the domestication of the goat and wheat had been achieved. As agricultural technology progressed, olive trees, horses, and grapevines would come to be domesticated over the next 6,000 years. And really, the process was almost complete by 3000 BCE. Not much has been domesticated since, and the advances that we've had since then have been much less dramatic and substantial. The most fantastic thing about this revolution is that the vast majority of the food we eat today is the product of these processes. We basically subsist on countless variations of the domesticated plants and animals that we managed to tame between 9000 BCE and 3000 BCE. But it's not just 6000 years that we're talking about. Before those 6,000 years, the Levant's hunter-gatherers began to transition into a semi-sedentary lifestyle. And that will be the focus of this episode. So, people's lifestyles in the Levant were altering gradually from 20,000 and onwards with stops and starts. They did not wholly change their lifestyles overnight. You know, it can be tough to tell the difference between sedentary and hunter-gatherer communities based on their archaeological remains because home bases and storage facilities were part of the nomadic lifestyle in the Epipaleolithic and even before. In addition, many of the earliest shelters were perishable and have long since disappeared. So how can an archaeologist tell when agriculture began to take hold? What is the relevant evidence? After all, the earliest structures didn't survive. They were made of wood and other perishables. So how do we know? I found this pretty fascinating, actually. Our best clue is the steady increase in the remains of field mice. You see, our move to permanent homes was a bonanza for certain creatures, like roaches, rats, mice. They have done much better since we've moved to permanent houses and dwelling than they did just out in nature. Now, by the earlier Neolithic period, the shelters humans built in the Levant were of better quality, so some of them have survived. And we can see the differences between seasonal structures in Sinai and the Negev, where agriculture had limited potential, and the dwellings built in the north, where homes were more permanent. One of the interesting findings that show us that the move to agriculture was a process rather than an event is the discovery that humans have been eating wheat for much longer than expected. A little bit like when we found out that fire had been used for far longer than we had previously believed. So if you read a book uh, 20, 30 years ago, you would be told that wheat was first used by human beings around 12,000 years ago. However, 
That seems to be untrue. There is evidence Homo sapiens ate cereal-based foods, uh, not very advanced ones, kind of uh, gunk, kind of wet uh, gunk, 105,000 years ago. We know this because processed wheat seeds were found on tools near Lake Nisa in Mozambique. And they show that humans have had a longer-standing relationship with grains than previously understood. They weren't important to our diet up until 12,000 or I should say 20,000 years ago, but they were definitely on the menu occasionally. Um, the methods for growing and producing the plant improved significantly after 20,000 years ago, and wheat became a more critical resource. Uh, and increased efforts were put into its production. So by 12,000 years ago, we were already very familiar with wheat. Uh, at that time, humans started to plant it intentionally, rather than merely harvesting naturally occurring wheat. They also soon lay aside extra seeds for sowing the fields for the next harvest. And that also meant choosing the best seeds and throwing away the bad seeds, uh, which is a form of genetic domestication. Now, planting wheat is far more efficient if you place it deep in the earth. So these early farmers developed implements to hoe and plow the soil. Soon, they became concerned about parasites and weeds, and they learned how to counter those threats to the food supply. Eventually, these all-consuming tasks became the center of human existence. Semi-permanent camps turned into sedentary villages, and the revolution ensued. There was nothing inevitable about this. It only occurred among Homo sapiens. Similar developments did not occur among our Neanderthal cousins. Moreover, the change was in mindset rather than biology. So what do we mean by that? Well, there's no evidence of significant evolutionary change in Homo sapiens 20,000, 12,000 years ago. In other words, the humans who entered this lifestyle were almost identical physically to those who did not. However, the increased caloric intake from agriculture when it became successful made them taller and more robust than their nomadic counterparts. But what matters here is that humans entering the sedentary lifestyle were not notably superior to those from, say, 30,000 years ago in any meaningful sense. So we have to look for clues as to why this revolution occurred elsewhere. It's not because we changed. It's because our environment changed. So why am I spending so much time talking about agriculture? Well, it's pretty important. It's no coincidence that the podcast has not dealt so far with any kingdoms or empires. Humans have always banded together into groups. We're very social, and it was necessary for hunting and survival. But hunter-gatherer societies could always split into fairly small tribes. They were usually based around one or two families, and they seldom exceeded more than 100 individuals. Now, agriculture can support much larger political units. If you think about the modern state, it's first and foremost a territorial entity. It is meant to protect a piece of land with a fixed population. Our ideas of political organization are based on staying in one place, and they're intended to serve the needs and also to exploit sedentary populations. How did this happen? Well, being a farmer is great in terms of producing more calories, but that requires storing food. 
The bad part of storing food is that it puts a target on your back. Keep in mind, there were still many hunter-gatherers around in the early days of agriculture. Nomads who want resources didn't have to forage and hunt for days on end anymore. They could just find your grain storage and bam, feast time for the entire gang. So farmers had to stand guard. But are you really going to stand guard when you need to wake up at 5 a.m. to milk the goats? Soon you start to employ guards, but that's expensive, so you put up walls. And farmers start to hire guards together. Pretty soon you have a militia. When you have a lot of farms, that turns into an army. To coordinate these defenses, you need rulers. These rulers need money that can only be made through the taxation of farmers. You get the picture. In this sort of culture, individuals develop a passionate attachment to their small patch of land. That's when we start thinking about private property. See, these farmers developed a sense of entitlement over homes, animals, and possessions, leading to this concept. And we can still see today that uh, hunter-gatherer societies have less of a concept of private property than those that are sedentary. For example, a lot of Native American cultures do, don't accept the idea of owning a piece of land. That's not how they understand the use of land. They see it as more communal, and that's not a coincidence. As we get closer to the agricultural revolution, we also see an increase in artistic expression. Most experts agree that artistic representations are part of creating stronger conceptual ties between the people and a specific place. Kind of like when someone sprays graffiti on a wall. They're establishing a type of ownership over the place. In addition, with different decorations and artifacts found in somewhat predictable regional settings, artisanship styles were likely associated with band identity. That would increase the ability to have larger societies based on more than 100 individuals, and their identity was becoming more and more significant, and it was transcending the level of families and bands. But agriculture didn't just create private property, it also created time. You see, agricultural life requires planning in terms of days and months. Most notably, you need to know when the next harvest is. When do you reap? When do you sow? To understand the cycles, the idea of time and calendars were devised and every agricultural culture developed one. The focus on time brought with it holidays often designed to celebrate the harvest and other agricultural landmarks. And let's face it, being a farmer back then was probably pretty miserable, so spiritual beliefs were needed to give meaning to life. A religious elite of clerics and priests often arose, made up primarily of people who, you know, didn't want to perform hard labor. Therefore, while most of the population were subsistence farmers, a small elite grew on top of them, and they controlled the defense of the farms and regulated the religions that gave life purpose. I could go on and on. The agricultural revolution changed everything. Indeed, we still live within the social order that it spawned today. It is important to note that not only farmers were transformed by domestication. Nomadic bands were also forever altered, especially in the Middle East. While they used to hunt and gather, most nomadic bands in the Middle East today base themselves on um, 
the domestication of animals. These are pastoralist herders, a lifestyle that persists in parts of the Levant to this day. And they were inspired or adopted the technology of agriculturists in order to domesticate sheep and goats and cows and camels and other animals that they used for their uh, lifestyles. Now, I mentioned that the early farmers had pretty hard lives, and that's for sure. Uh, but there's been some arguments over what to make of these hardships. If you read Yuval Noah Harari's highly popular book, Sapiens, and I really think that everyone should, he has a very sharp view on the Neolithic Revolution. In his opinion, it isn't so much that humans domesticated wheat, but that the grains used us to their advantage. Here's what Harari has to say. The quote, Think for a moment about the agricultural revolution from the viewpoint of wheat. 10,000 years ago, wheat was just a wild grass, one of many, confined to a small range in the Middle East. Suddenly, within a few short millennia, it was growing worldwide. According to the essential evolutionary criteria of survival and reproduction, wheat has become one of the most successful plants in the Earth's history. Wheat did so by manipulating Homo sapiens to its advantage. You see, Homo sapiens had been living a reasonably comfortable life hunting and gathering until about 10,000 years ago, but began to invest more effort in cultivating wheat. As a result, within a couple of millennia, humans in many parts of the world did little from dawn to dusk other than take care of wheat plants. End quote. So he sees wheat as a trap that's caused great misery. Uh, essentially, the argument is that early farmers worked harder, ate worse, and had lower mortality rates than their nomadic counterparts. He follows a theory inspired by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, that the more we possess, the more we require. This is a very appealing theory, but it's not really well borne out by the evidence. Remember this argument over these next two episodes as we look at agriculture. The real story is quite different. From 20,000 to 10,000 years ago, humans in the Levant and elsewhere went through extreme climate changes. They used wheat and the domestication of animals to make sure they had reliable sources of food so they could survive. If wheat and field mice won in the process, that was because of conditions humans created and not vice versa. You see, as the book of Genesis had predicted, we were becoming tyrants over nature. But as usual, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at how we got to there. Remember when we talked about Homo sapiens leaving Africa? It seems like a significant change to us. But for the people doing the leaving, they were just going from one place to another. The development of agriculture is similar. By 20,000 years ago, hunter-gatherers were planting food as part of their repertoire. Sometimes that element was emphasized. Other times, it was neglected. This was happening all around the world. But agriculture was adapted at a wider scale earlier in the land of Israel than elsewhere. There are specific reasons for that, and as always, they're related to the small land size. Here is one prominent example. One of the main staples of the Homo sapien diet in the pre-Neolithic age was the gazelle. The Israeli gazelle is essentially sedentary. It often doesn't wander more than one square kilometer when vegetation is thick, 
And when rains are plentiful, they breed all year round and allow the local human population to feed without moving around much at all. But those delicious gazelle weren't alone. Wild cattle, fallow deer, roe deer, wild boar, and ibex had really condensed home ranges in Israel because there just isn't that much uh, land where there are vegetation to eat. And they also had predictable patterns of migration for the very same reason. Therefore, those living on this prey did not have to travel much. You can see where this is going. If you keep near a particular patch of land, it makes sense to plant produce there. Then, while traveling back and forth, hunting and gathering, you can check in on it. The better a job you do at planting, the less you need to wander. Soon you are staying closer to home and improving your agricultural technology. And because of the density of the animals that they ate, it facilitated the process. And wandering too far afield wasn't profitable because there was desert hedging them in on all ends. So, since you're traveling past the same spot over and over again, why not plant some olives there? What goes better with your yummy gazelle than olives? Soon your lifestyle becomes more sedentary and you focus on improving your farming. So, the people of Epipaleolithic Israel traveled less and less, especially if they lived near the coast or in the Galilee. With this in mind, it's not surprising at all that agriculture first emerged in this location. The combination of agriculture and plentiful game meant that people could live more comfortably. So populations increased, women had longer fertility windows, and more children lived into adulthood. What happens then? All of these increased individuals hunt the same gazelle until those poor things started to disappear under the pressure. Other animals start to disappear too. Then how do you make ends meet? Well, so the larger population doesn't starve, people need to grow more food. So once you start, it's a sustaining cycle leading to more agricultural development. Once you're living on agriculture, you're going to want to build a shelter near your crop. You do so for convenience, but also to protect it. So the first homes were probably occupied only seasonally around harvest time. But as more crops were planted with different harvest times, habitation grew longer. And soon, as we said, the concept of property, the concept of ownership of land emerged. After all, you planted crops and built a house. Why should anyone else eat from your produce? So get off my lawn, you punk. So who were these mixed groups that were somewhere between agriculture and hunter-gathering? And how do we know about them? Well, once again, what we have in this situation is the remains and nothing but the remains. And as we've said before, pots do not equal people. We don't know as much as we'd like about these people just from their remains. Honestly, that's probably even more true for the Epipaleolithic than for previous eras. Because we're talking about a uh, particularly cold era when the Ice Age was in its last maximal stage, the people living in the Levant at this era were under a lot of stress and they were trying to survive. And I think that we find similar remains 
from different groups, not necessarily because they shared some kind of ambitious culture, but because they used similar survival methods. So when we discuss epipaleolithic culture, remember, these people were trying to make it in a brutal and unforgiving part of the Ice Age. So the first major epipaleolithic culture in the land of Israel is the Kebaran culture. Much of the evidence we have um, of the transition to the Neolithic era comes from the Kebaran sites. The Kebara cave sits south of the modern city of Haifa, and as usual, the site of the first findings is where the name came from. The Kabarans were highly nomadic individuals, quite different from their cave-centric Aurignacian predecessors. Indeed, they were more hardy and outdoorsy. For example, they seem to have excelled at the domestication of dogs and the use of bows and arrows. They were the dominant culture in the land of Israel starting 20,000 years ago, and they would remain so for the next 5,500 years. Their appearance coincides with the late glacial maximum. As the name indicates, this was the last time the ice sheets in the world reached their all-time historical widest extent. This meant that ice sheets covered northern North America, northern Europe, and much of Asia. Our area wasn't covered by ice, but as you can imagine, it was much colder than today. There were glaciers on top of some of the highest mountains. Too bad the Neanderthals were extinct, because they would have loved this period. So, we can see the Kabaran culture as a reaction to this difficult climate. So, how did they live? They used small homes as basis for extensive foraging. These homes were about 25 square meters in size. Sometimes these houses were isolated, but in many cases, they were built in close proximity to one another. Because these individuals were still highly nomadic, the culture required tools to deal with the coast's lowlands and highlands, so different tools for different areas. As a result, they had an impressively wide array of tools at their disposal. They were also the first known group to collect wild cereals, and this is why they're epipaleolithic, uh, why we start to see that transition. The Kabarans designed tools to grind grain, and those remain the earliest known tools of this sort. Therefore, their culture provided a crucial link between hunter-gathering and agriculture. Here's an example of a tool associated with the Kabaran culture, as described by our old friend M.W. Prausnitz. It has a long, narrow blade pointed at both ends due to the continued retouch of the back. The back is blunted by a steep retouch. This bladelet is also known as the Kabaran double-pointed blade. Aside from being pioneers in blades and in serial tools, the Kabarans were also pioneers in artistic self-expression. For example, an image of a bird found in the Jezreel Valley is the first definitive uh, case of artistic representation found in Israel. At first, the Kabarans were limited to the coastal areas alongside some isolated oases. However, we start to see them spread 
around 14,500 to 13,000 years ago into areas further from the coast. When did that happen? When the climate became more comfortable and the ice retreated from its furthest extent. At their peak, we see Kabaran settlements in the heels of southern Lebanon, the western Negev, and south Jordan. That helped facilitate the transition. Domestication of goats and sheep followed cereals and other grains. In retrospect, this looks like an inevitable march towards the agricultural revolution. But of course, the reality isn't quite like playing civilization. There is no clear technological tree, and much knowledge has been forgotten over time. In other words, changes occurred in stops and starts. We don't know much about their culture, and we can always surmise based on pretty limited evidence. One of the problems is that we've not found the remains of many Kabaran individuals. However, it seems that there's a likely good reasons for that. Charred human bones of more than seven individuals were found in layer C of the Kabara cave. Their burnt state may indicate a burial custom, thus explaining the scarcity of primary human burials. Later in the Kabarian period, however, it seems that they did bury the remains of humans, at least sometimes. One interesting remain was found in Neve David. A man, aged 25 to 30, was discovered buried between two rows of stone. A fragment of mortar used for grinding was placed over his skull. Meanwhile, a bowl, which may have been used in conjunction with the mortar, was placed behind the neck. No one can tell you with any certainty what this means, but to me, it suggests the person was associated with their craft. It may be a touching tribute to a life centering around labor, deeply appreciated by the rest of the Kabaran community. Keep in mind, this culture worked together to overcome harsh conditions, and they may have appreciated this man's contribution to the collective survival. This culture evolved and changed over time. As the weather improved and ice sheets receded, the Kabaran culture was replaced by what scholars call the geometric Kabaran culture. Now, it's quite similar to its predecessor. However, the tools are more advanced. The geometric version is so-called because this culture produced microlithic tools with trapeze rectangle blades. That was a shape their predecessors could not create, so it's a real advance. While the center of the culture remained near the coast and the Galilee, new settlements turned up as far afield as Sinai. Some of the settlements are quite far from any known water source, raising questions as to how they even sustained themselves. Either way, the spread reflects greater confidence in their ability to maintain themselves in arid and semi-arid locales. So, at this point, they're less desperately struggling for survival. Now, interestingly, even though the Kabarians were the dominant culture in the land of Israel in the Epipaleolithic, another culture emerged around the same time, called the Meshubian culture. Now, the Meshubians are identified from sites found in northern Sinai and the Negev, they emerged side by side with the geometric Kabaran culture that also spread into the desert. The existence of both these cultures at the same time 
is an early sign of how the geography of Israel allowed different communities to coexist. A lot of this has to do with the network of wadis we talked about that separated the small country into different sections. A few sites have also been found in southern Jordan and the southern foothills of the Judean desert. Because of the different climate, their tools were quite different. They were smaller and sharper in order to more easily hunt the quick and shifty prey of the desert, like the early Homo sapiens we talked about in Arabia. So, in the Epipaleolithic, humans were increasingly using agriculture to supplement their diets. Of course, in the process, they began to move around less. But, a traumatic climate change event 12,000 years ago would soon force them to lean even more heavily on growing food than they had before. In the process of adapting to this change, humanity would change forever, and the land of Israel would be at the forefront of this change. But this will have to wait until next week. So, subscribe now. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and join the conversation. See you next time on the History of the